We've been going through the book of First Peter. It's actually a letter that Peter writes to a group of Christians who have been scattered throughout an area called Asia Minor. And he's writing to them to encourage them in their walk, to remind them of who they are and whose they are, to remind them that they are united with Christ in their salvation, and that shapes their suffering because they have seen and experienced and are recipients of grace upon grace. So now we come to chapter 4. So I'm going to read this, uh, 1 Peter 4. It's printed in your bulletin as well. I'm going to be reading 1 through 11. And admittedly, uh, this is a little bit of a tricky verse, um, a tricky passage. Last week was tricky, and this week is tricky as well. So Peter is keeping us on our toes this morning. So hear the word of God. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to this passage now, your word is, is sharper than a two-edged sword. Your word actually transforms us from the inside out. So we don't presume to live over your word or beside your word. We want to live under your word. We want to be transformed by your word. So we need your Holy Spirit to do that. This is a tricky text. So Holy Spirit, be with us now. For your sake and for your glory, we pray these things. Amen. I heard of this old southern pastor who was visiting a friend in the hospital, and as he was visiting this friend, he started talking to a nurse who was there, and the topic of heaven came up. And he said, honey, how do you know you're going to get to heaven? And she said, well, I believe in God, and I'm trying my best to do good works for him. And this kind old southern pastor looked at her and smiled and said, oh, honey, I got better news for you. What is the better news that this old southern pastor had? The better news is this. Your works will never get you into heaven. 
You just cannot satisfy a holy, perfect God. And in his perfection, that's the standard that he has set for anybody who wants to get to heaven. You need to be perfect just like he's perfect. You took the test of life and you have gotten an F. You know that and I know that. We are not perfect. So how can we please God? How can we get right with him? You can't even get near this holy God. You need to get an A in life, 100% to get near God. This is the good news of Jesus. You see, Jesus wasn't just a good man. You don't kill good men. Jesus was God himself who came for you and for me. He knew that we couldn't get it right. He knew that we were going to fail at life. And so he lived the perfect life that we needed. And he died the death on the cross that we deserved. And then he rose from the dead to show everybody that he was seriously God. It's not your works that are going to save you. It's his works that are going to save you. And that is a free gift offered to you. When you put your trust, your faith in Jesus, he gives you his A and he takes your F. And that is grace. It's not works that saves you. It's grace that saves you. Grace is a gift from God. And when that gift is received, it disrupts everything in you. This is exactly what Peter has been saying in this letter. This grace upon grace that Jesus has brought to you disrupts everything. It changes everything about how you live with your neighbors, how you live within the church, how you view yourself, and how you view God. Grace is a gift from God, undeserved and unearned. It just is received, and it disrupts. This passage I just read, I'm going to break it into four sections for us, so we can kind of, uh, you know, how do you eat an elephant? Like one bite at a time? That's how we're going to eat this passage, one bite at a time. So the first section is verses one through three. And the title there is, Grace Arms Our Mind. Then the next section is verses four through six, where grace provokes, pokes people in the eye. The, fourth, the third section is verses seven through 11a, the first part of 11. And this is how grace shapes the one another's within the church. And then the last thing we're gonna see is grace leads us to worship. And that's in the last part of verse 11. So let's look at this first part. Grace arms our minds, verses one through three. Here he is hearkening back to chapter 3, verse 18. He, I love the, um, the disciples' letters, these apostles' letters, because the apostles have like a degree of like attention deficit disorder, I think, and they're kind of jumping all around, but they keep linking things together. So he's talking about the suffering of Christ, but he's actually talking about from verse uh, 18 in chapter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins. And here again, he says, Christ suffered for you. He suffered in the flesh. Why is he so preoccupied with this suffering? Because he wants you to know, he wants his readers to know, you are not alone in your suffering. Christ has suffered for you. 
He sympathizes with you. He sees you. Recently, I was talking to a counselor, and he said that loneliness compounds trauma. When we experience trauma by ourselves, and people don't come around us, our loneliness can compound that trauma. Peter knows this, and so he's telling his readers, you are experiencing profound trauma, but you are not alone. Christ also suffered And therefore, he sympathizes with you. You are united with him in that suffering. And this is God's grace to you. So now when you suffer, you have a weapon for your suffering, Peter says. He says, arm yourselves. Now, I have to think that Peter's being a little bit cheeky here. Because if you remember, Peter is a big concealed carry guy. He is all about being armed. If you remember, the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, they came to arrest him, the Romans and the Pharisees. And Peter saw what was going down, and he took out his sword, and he went to cut off the head of one of the servants. Now, he missed. He doesn't have great aim. He chopped off his ear instead. But if you remember, Jesus healed that man. But Peter was all about being armed. He was all about violence, Peter was a violent man, willing to be violent in order to protect what he thought was right. But then grace changed Peter. And so here he uses this word to be armed. And I am sure that the story of him chopping off somebody's ear was notoriously told around Asia Minor. But he twists it. He puts it on its head. He says, don't be armed with a sword. Be armed with a mind. He's not armed with a mind for revenge or for protection. He's armed with the mind of Christ. And he says earlier in these these verses, we looked at them already throughout the weeks, what does that mind look like? He does not revile those that revile him. He doesn't seek to do evil to those that do evil to him. Instead, his mind now is shaped by the glory of God. It's shaped by grace. Peter says, you can think this way as well. In fact, he says, you can think in such a way that it is disruptive. This mind that you can have in Christ, now you can choose suffering over sinning, he says. When you are armed with the mind of Christ, you can choose to suffer rather than to sin. And in that way, you are actually free from sin. Arm yourselves, he says, with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What he's saying there is that when we choose to suffer with Christ, when we choose not to go along with what everyone else is doing, when we say, no, I'm not going to enter into sin here, there still might be suffering for you. But now that suffering links you with Jesus. When grace arms your mind, then you flee from the passions of this world. He says there in verse 3, all of these different passions, all of these horrible things that they used to do. And now you see them as toxic and fruitless and harmful. God's grace working in you to change your mind, to transform your life. So now you can live in a way that is the will of God. 
And the will of God always brings us into life. But just to be clear, turning from sin and living for Jesus is not easy. Amber and I had a really good friend in Florida, and when she became a Christian, she said she became a Christian, and immediately she got very angry with God because she thought that becoming a Christian, her life was going to be easier, but it got harder. And in fact, once she became a Christian, she was rejected by many of her friends because grace provokes others. That's my second point, verses four through six. Grace provokes others. Peter says, if you're going to live for Christ and live under his grace, then you're going to have to choose things, choose a way to live that others are gonna see and they're gonna reject you. He says they might even malign you. Perhaps you have experienced this. I know I did. When you became a Christian, and you choose not to hang out with certain people or go to a certain party, a party maybe that you would usually go to, you would choose not to laugh at a joke that you would usually be the one making. You choose, not to, you choose to use your time and your money and your resources differently than you used to, and your friends start to laugh at you, and they start to try to convince you to come back. Do it our way. Remember the old days? And then when you say, no, I live for someone different now, they get indignant. And then they say, what, you think you're better than me? You see, Peter is a good pastor, and he's a realist. He knows that some of these Christians in Asia Minor are new, and they had friends who don't believe, and he calls them Gentiles. He says, expect them to make fun of you. In the NIV, it says, expect them to abuse you. And then he says, here's an alternative way to respond to them. I have to be honest, and I, I think, and I, I think I've fallen into this. I know I've Christians start to think that it's us versus them. We have been saved. We've been saved instead of them. Them being the world, them being a neighbor that you don't like, them being a coworker that you don't get along with. We start to make it us versus them, us instead of them. And what that breeds within the church is an arrogance, a conceit. What it breeds within the church is a better than attitude that can lead us to indifference toward those who don't know Jesus. But we need to have a different attitude, because grace gives us a different attitude. What grace says is not you've been saved instead of them. Grace said you have been saved for them. To be an example, you've been saved to be an example of love and grace and mercy and kindness and repentance and the fear of God and to point them to Jesus. One of the most powerful things that a Christian can do is before someone who says they're not a Christian is to repent and ask for forgiveness. We have been saved for them. This is what Peter says. You have been saved to do good works before these Gentiles so that some will give glory to God. You have been saved for the world. 
It is not us and them, it's us for them. That is why Peter says in this passage, don't get wrapped up with judging the Gentiles. Don't worry about that. They're gonna malign you, don't worry about that. God is the judge and he will have his day of reckoning. Peter says something on the surface that's kind of confusing. On the surface, it says, we kind of think, what is he saying here? He says, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. He says, this is why the gospel was preached to those who are dead. He's not saying that the gospel is preached to dead people. That is not what he is saying. Peter is saying that even to those who have heard the gospel and have died, they've believed in Jesus and they're dead. The gospel is still effective. It is still mighty to save. And although they might have been judged here on earth, because during this time, these Christians would have been pulled up on charges of treason because they weren't worshiping Caesar, they were worshiping Jesus, and so then they were thrown to the lions. So they were torn apart by packs of dogs. So they were put into the Colosseum to be slaughtered by the gladiators. Peter is giving an encouragement to his friends that even though they have suffered and are suffering the gospel is still mighty to save and one day Jesus is gonna come back and he's gonna judge this world and for all those that believe in him, he's gonna take them home and for all those that don't, he's gonna put them in hell. Disruptive grace arms our minds with Christ so that we can choose suffering over sin but when we do that, it, grace, this disruptive grace provokes people it provokes them to judge us and to malign us. But we need to trust that God is still the just judge. And this disruptive grace does something else, Peter says. It places you in a community, a community of grace. And this is why he says in verse seven, the end of all things is at hand. And then he goes on and talks about the one another's. Grace shapes the one another's. This is my third point. Grace shapes the one another's. Peter switches gears a little bit here. And he says, grace doesn't just impact the way you deal with this world. It also impacts the way that we deal with one another inside the church. He says, this disruptive grace shapes the one another's that we encounter as Christians. He starts this uh, section with, the end of all things are at hand. Now, he's not trying to be... Um, He's not trying to be apocalyptic here, per se. He's not trying to give a, a theory of what's going to happen in the end of time. What he's saying is, life is short, so how are you going to live? And he links these two things, self-control, sober-minded, to prayer. What kind of prayer life are you going to have? The days are short. How are you going to pray Self-control and sober-minded are all self-discipline issues. Prayer is tied to what we prioritize in our lives. Are you out of control with your time and your money and your resources? Are you realistic in how you see the world and God's call on your life? It's going to inform the way you pray. Being self-control and sober-minded influences the way you pray. He moves on then 
to the one another's. And he says this, three points about the one another's. First, he talks about love. He says, in a community of grace, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Keep loving one another earnestly, because love covers a multitude of sins. Keep loving one another earnestly, because love covers a multitude of sins. I can preach on that for days. This love that he is talking about, I just want to look at two words, earnestly and cover. Earnestly means deep. It means abiding. It means sacrificing. This love means knowing. Earnest love takes a lot of work, and it is painful, but it has the deepest reward. Earnest love is not this. I'm going to be honest. This phrase I'm about to say triggers me. There's two Owens. There's the redeemed Owen, and he's the good Owen. Most of you know the good Owen. There's also the bad Owen. He's still in there somewhere. Sometimes he comes out. And when I hear this phrase, the bad Owen really wants to come out because it triggers me. And here's the phrase. God calls me to love you, not to like you. That phrase triggers me because I'm so glad that that's not what Jesus said to me. And he doesn't say that to you. In John 15, he says this, you are my friend. I don't call you a servant, I call you my friend. Which means I don't just love you, I like you. This is the earnest love that Peter is saying we have to have. Because it's disruptive, that grace is disruptive to this world that does not understand love. When they say love within the church of people that don't just love one another earnestly, deeply, sacrificially, knowingly, but they also see people that like each other. It shapes our community. Not just earnestly, but also it covers. It covers a multitude of sins. This word cover means forgive. It forgives a multitude of sins. Our position as Christians is that we should always be ready to forgive. There's this woman, and she, she, Jesus is having a meal with these uptight religious types. And this woman kind of finds her way into the party, and she's crying, and she has some ointment in her hand, and she pours it on Jesus' feet, and she washes his feet, and then she dries them with her hair. And one of these uptight religious pastors says, look at her. What a waste. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Those that are forgiven much, they love much. This is what Peter is telling us. This disruptive grace that we have experienced, it means now we can love deeply, and that love now covers a multitude of sins. When we realize the reach of God's love into your life, it then stretches your love for one another. I wanna read that again. When you realize the reach of God's love into your life, then it will stretch your love for one another. And this stretching love does two things. It promotes hospitality and service, Peter says. Hospitality, it literally means 
having people in your house, just so you know. That's literally what it means. Like, hospitality literally means having someone else come over your home. And you don't have to, like, clean up your house. Just have them over your home. And who he's talking about here is other believers. He's saying to be hospitable to other believers. The word he uses here is a fascinating word. It's philo-zeno. Xenophobia is a fear of strangers. Fear of those that don't look like us, don't believe like us. You hear that word when we talk about immigration, xenophobia. Philo means brotherly love. Now what he's saying is have brotherly love for one another because you are all strangers here. And that means we're all in the same boat. And so what he's encouraging us is to encourage one another in our homes, have each other over to eat a meal, to play games, to have fun, to build a relationship of trust, to get to know one another. In a few weeks, we're gonna do dinners for eight. Dinners for eight is a way for us to connect with one another. We did this in Florida. Amber and I did this in Florida. We only did it one time, I think, maybe two times. But it was so transformative. We still have relationships with some of those people. And what we did is we just have people over your house and you just do life with them for a couple of hours. You share a meal, you laugh, you talk, tell stories. But this word, hospitality, needs to be a hallmark for our church, a brotherly love for stranger. BPC, Belfont Presbyterian, my friends. How can we be hospitable people? It's by looking to Jesus. Jesus is hospitable. What is Jesus doing right now? What's he doing right now? He's doing two things. He's interceding for us. He's praying for us. And then he said he's doing something else. He's making us a home. He's building for us a kingdom. So that when he comes back to judge this world and take us home, there's a place for us. Jesus is hospitable. He is the epitome of of, his, of hospitality. And what does he say? Do it without grumbling. I, I love Peter, because Peter knows us. He knows our hearts. We are grumbling people. Oh, I gotta have those people over again, man. I gotta hear that story, the same story from Owen again. We are grumbling people. And he says, don't grumble. Be encouraging. Have people in your homes. Serve them, he says, second. Serve one another with your gifts. So much to say here, but I don't want to get into what spiritual gifts are. Peter doesn't get into what spiritual gifts are. What he says is, God has given every single person in this church a gift, and that gift needs to be used to edify the church and to serve one another. Now, I don't want this to become a guilt fest because we need people to clean this church. So we need you all to sign up and help do that. I'm, I'm not going to guilt you into that. But what I am gonna challenge you is I want you to think about the gifts that God has given you, the things that you can do, and how are you using them to serve the body, encouraging the body. We are to share our gifts. He says here, whether that's to speak the word of God or whether that's to serve in some other degree, this week I did a devotional with Griffin. Griffin was up early one morning and he and I sat, we did a devotional and the story was about bees. 
And when you see bees, you've seen bees before, they're swarming, right? They just look like a hot mess. They're just swarming all around their hive. As my friend back there has bees in hives or around like a, uh, maybe a hive that's hanging from a branch. They look like they are a hot mess. But really, every bee has a job. Whether that's to go collect pollen, whether that's to make honey, whether that's to construct the comb, whether that is to fan their tiny little bee wings to chill out and to cool the queen, whatever their job is, they do it. And although it might look like a mess on the outside, the inside, it's beautiful. And that's what God is calling us to do through this passage. It might be messy for us to serve alongside each other. But when we do it with brotherly love, looking to the interests of others before ourselves, it is a beautiful thing for this world to see. And it brings glory to God. And that's my last point. Grace leads to worship. Everything, everything, and I want you to hear this because he says it, everything is about the glory of God. If there are multiverses, they all exist for the glory of God. The glory of God is the main theme of the Bible. The glory of God is the main purpose of our lives. The glory of God is why he saves us by grace. Grace always leads us to worship the glory of God because grace reveals the glory of God. But grace isn't just supposed to be heard about. It's not just supposed to be seen. The glory of God, the grace of God is supposed to be tasted. So let's go to the table now. Father God, as we go to the table, as we go to a place of grace, we are reminded from this passage of the disruptive grace that arms our minds so that in our suffering, we know that we are united with Christ. And so now we are free from the power of sin. And although that might promote and provoke others to malign us, Lord, we know that one day you will judge all people. And so let us be a people that live in a community of grace, looking to love one another, looking to be hospitable to one another, looking to serve one another, all for your glory. So at this table, feed our faith in you. We pray these things in your name, amen.